Section 25 of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter 16, Paragraph 3, Part D. Next, with regard to the offences to which the condition of a wife stands exposed. From the patterns that have been exhibited already, the coincidence and associations that takes place between the offences that concern the existence of this condition and those which concern the existence of the condition of a husband may easily enough be apprehended without further repetitions. The catalogue of those now under consideration will be precisely the same in every article as the catalogue last exhibited. Thus much for the several sorts of offences relative to the several sorts of domestic conditions, those which are constituted by such natural relations as are contiguous being included. There remain those which are uncontiguous, of which, after so much has been said of the others, it will naturally be expected that some notice should be taken. These, however, do not afford any of that matter which is necessary to constitute a condition. In point of fact, no power seems ever to be annexed to any of them. A grandfather, perhaps, may be called by the law to take upon him the guardianship of his orphan grandson but then the power he has belongs to him not as a grandfather, but as a guardian. In point of possibility, indeed, power might be annexed to these relations, just as it might to any other. But still no new sort of domestic condition would result from it, since it has been shown that there can be no others that, being constituted by power, shall be distinct from those which have been already mentioned. Such as they are, however, they have this in common with the before-mentioned relations, that they are capable of importing either benefit or burden. They therefore stand exposed to the several offences whereby those or any other relations are liable to be affected in point of existence. It may be expected, therefore, that in virtue of these offences they should be added to the list of relations which are liable to be objects of delinquency. But the fact is that they already stand included in it, and although not expressly named, yet as effectually as if they were. On the one hand, it is only by affecting such or such a contiguous relation that any offence affecting uncontiguous relations can take place. On the other hand, neither can any offence affecting the existence of the contiguous relations be committed without affecting the existence of an indefinite multitude of such as are uncontiguous. A false witness comes and causes it to be believed that you are the son of a woman, who in truth is not your mother. What follows? An endless tribe of other false persuasions, that you are the grandson of the father, of the mother, of this supposed mother, that you are the son of some husband of hers, or at least of some man with whom she has cohabited, the grandson of his father and mother, and so on, the brother of their other children, if they have any, the brother-in-law of the husbands and wives of those children, if married, the uncle of the children of those children, and so on. 
On the other hand, that you are not the son of your real mother, nor of your real father, that you are not the grandson of either of your real grandfathers or grandmothers, and so on without end. All which persuasions result from are included in the one original false persuasion of your being the son of this your pretended mother. It should seem, therefore, at first sight, that none of the offences against these uncontiguous relations could ever come expressly into question. For, by the same rule that one ought, so it might seem ought a thousand others. The offences against the uncontiguous being merged, as it were, in those which affect the contiguous relations. So far, however, is this from being the case, that in speaking of an offence of this stamp, it is not uncommon to hear a great deal said of this or that uncontiguous relationship which it affects. At the same time, as no notice at all shall be taken of any of those which are contiguous. How happens this? Because to the uncontiguous relation are annexed perhaps certain remarkable advantages or disadvantages, while to all the intermediate relations none shall be annexed which are a comparison worth noticing. Suppose Antony or Lepidus to have contested the relationship of Octavius, after Augustus, to Caius Julius Caesar. How could it have been done? It could only have been done by contesting, either Octavius being the son of Atia, or Atia being the daughter of Julia, or Julia being the daughter of Lucius Julius Caesar, or Lucius Julius Caesar being the father of Caius. But to have been the son of Atia, or the grandson of Julia, or the great-grandson of Lucius Julius Caesar, was in comparison of small importance. These intervening relationships were, comparatively speaking, of no other use to him than in virtue of there being so many necessary links in the genealogical claim which connected him with the sovereign of the empire. As to the advantages and disadvantages which may happen to be annexed to any of these uncontiguous relationships, we have seen already that no powers over the correlative person, nor any corresponding obligations, are of the number. Of what nature then can they be? They are, in truth, no other than what are a result either of local and accidental institutions, or of some spontaneous bias that has been taken by the moral sanction. It would therefore be to little purpose to attempt tracing them out a priori by any exhaustive process. All that can be done is to pick up and lay together some of the principal articles in each catalogue by way of specimen. The advantages which a given relationship is apt to impart seem to be referable chiefly to the following heads. 1 chance of succession to the property, or a part of the property, of the correlative person. 2. Chance of pecuniary support, to be yielded by the correlative person, either by appointment of law, or by spontaneous donation. 3. Accession of legal rank, including any legal privileges which may happen to be annexed to it, such as capacity of holding such and such beneficial offices exemption from such and such burthensome obligations, for instance, paying taxes, serving burthensome offices, etc., etc. 4. Accession of rank by courtesy, including the sort of reputation which is customary and spontaneously annexed to distinguished birth and family alliance, 
whereon may depend the chance of advancement in the way of marriage, or in a thousand other ways less obvious. The disadvantages which a given relation is liable to impart seem to be referable chiefly to the following heads. 1. Chance of being obliged, either by law or by force of the moral sanction, to yield pecuniary support to the correlative party. 2. Loss of legal rank, including the legal disabilities, as well as the burdensome obligations which the law is apt to annex, sometimes with injustice enough, to the lower stations. 3. Loss of rank by courtesy, including the loss of the advantages annexed by custom to such rank. 4. Incapacity of contracting matrimony with the correlative person, where the supposed consanguinity or affinity lies within the prohibited degrees. We now come to civil conditions. These, it may well be imagined, may be infinitely various, as various as the acts which a man may be either commanded or allowed, whether for his own benefit or that of others, to abstain from or to perform. As many different denominations as there are of persons distinguished with a view to such commands and allowances, those denominations only excepted which relate to the conditions above spoken of under the names of domestic one, so many civil conditions one might enumerate. Means, however, more or less explicit, may be found out of circumscribing their infinitude. What the materials are, if they so may be called, of which conditions or any other kind of legal possession can be made up, we have already seen. Beneficial powers, fiduciary powers, beneficial rights, fiduciary rights, relative duties, absolute duties. But as many conditions as import a power or right of the fiduciary kind, as possessed by the person whose condition is in question, belong to the head of trusts. The catalogue of the offences to which these conditions are exposed coincides, therefore, exactly with the catalogue of offences against trust, under which head they have been considered in a general point of view under the head of offences against trust, and such of them as are of a domestic nature, in a more particular manner in the character of offences against the several domestic conditions. Conditions constituted by such duties of the relative kind as have for their counterpart trusts constituted by fiduciary powers, as well as rights on the side of the correlative party, and those of a private nature, have also been already discussed under the appellation of domestic conditions. The same observation may be applied to the conditions constituted by such powers of the beneficial kind over persons as of our private nature, as also to the subordinate correlative conditions constituted by the duties corresponding to those rights and powers. As to absolute duties, there is no instance of a condition thus created, of which the institution is upon the principle of utility to be justified, unless the several religious conditions of the monastic kind should be allowed of as examples. There remain, as the only materials out of which the conditions which yet remain to be considered can be composed, conditions constituted by beneficial powers over things, conditions constituted by beneficial rights to things, that is, rights to power over things, 
or by rights to those rights, and so on, conditions constituted by rights to service, and conditions constituted by the duties corresponding to those respective rights. Out of these are to be taken those of which the materials are the ingredients of the several modifications of property, the several conditions of proprietorship. These are the conditions, if such for a moment they may be styled, which, having but here or there any specific names, are not commonly considered on the footing of conditions, so that the acts which of such conditions were recognised might be considered as offences against those conditions, are not wont to be considered in any other light than that of offences against property. Now the case is, as hath been already intimated, that of these civil conditions, those which are wont to be considered under that name, are not distinguished by any uniform and explicit line from those of which the materials are wont to be carried to the head of property. A set of rights shall in one instant be considered as constituting an article of property rather than a condition, while in another instance a set of rights of the same stamp is considered as constituting rather a condition than an article of property. This will probably be found to be the case in all languages, and the usage is different again in one language from what it is in another. From these causes it seems to be impractical to subject the class of civil conditions to any exhaustive method, so that for making a complete collection of them there seems to be no other expedient than that of searching the language through for them and taking them as they come. To exemplify this observation, it may be of use to lay open the structure, as it were, of two or three of the principal sorts or classes of conditions, comparing them with two or three articles of property which appear to be nearly of the same complexion. By this means the nature and generation, if one may so call it, of both these classes of ideal objects may be the more clearly understood. The several sorts of civil conditions that are not fiduciary may all, or at least the greater part of them, be comprehended under the head of rank, or that of profession, the latter word being taken in its most extensive sense, so as to include not only what are called the liberal professions, but those also which are exercised by the several sorts of traders, artists, manufacturers, and other persons of whatsoever station who are in the way of making a profit by their labour. Among ranks, then, as well as professions, let us, for the sake of perspicuity, take, for example, such articles as stand the clearest from any mixture of either fiduciary or beneficial power. The rank of knighthood is constituted how? By prohibiting all other persons from performing certain acts, the performance of which is the symbol of the order, at the same time that the knight in question and his companions are permitted, for instance, to wear a ribbon of a certain colour, in a certain manner, call himself by a certain title, to use an armorial seal with a certain mark on it. By laying all persons but the knight under this prohibition, the law subjects them to a set of duties, and since from the discharge of these duties a benefit results to the person in whose favour they are created, to wit, the benefit of enjoying such a share of extraordinary reputation as men are wont to yield to a person thus distinguished. To discharge them is to render him a service and duty, being a duty of the negative class. 
a duty consisting in the performance of certain acts of the negative kind. The service is what may be called a service of forbearance. It appears, then, that to generate this condition there must be two sorts of services. That which is the immediate cause of it, a service of the negative kind, to be rendered by the community at large, that which is the cause again of this service, a service of the positive kind, to be rendered by the law. The condition of a professional man stands upon a narrower footing. To constitute this condition there needs nothing more than a permission given him on the part of the legislator to perform those acts in the performance of which consists the exercise of his profession, to give or sell his advice or assistance in matters of law or physic, to give or sell his services as employed in the executing or overseeing of a manufacture or piece of work of such or such a kind, to sell a commodity of such or such a sort. Here then we see there is but one sort of service requisite, a service which may be merely of the negative kind, to be rendered by the law, the service of permitting him to exercise his profession, a service which, if there has been no prohibition laid on before, is rendered by simply forbearing to prohibit him. Now the ideal objects, which in the cases above specified, are said to be conferred upon a man by the services that are respectively in question, are in both cases not articles of property, but conditions. By such a behaviour on the part of the law, as shall be the reverse of that whereby they were respectively produced, a man may be made to forfeit them, and what he is then said to forfeit is in neither case his property, but in one case his rank or dignity, in the other case his trade or his profession, and in both cases his condition. Other cases there are again in which the law, by a process of the same sort with that by which it constituted the former of the two above-mentioned conditions, confers on him an ideal object, which the laws of language have placed under the head of property. The law permits a man to sell books, that is, all sorts of books in general. Thus far all that it has done is to invest him with a condition, and this condition he would equally possess although every one else in the world were to sell book likewise. Let the law now take an active part in his favour, and prohibit all other persons from selling books of a certain description, he remaining at liberty to sell them as before. It therefore confers on him a sort of exclusive privilege or monopoly, which is called a copyright. But by investing him with this right, it is not said to invest him with any new sort of condition, what it invests him with is spoken of as an article of property, to wit, of that sort of property which is termed incorporal, and so on in the case of an engraving, a mechanical engine, a medicine, or in short of a saleable article of any other sort. Yet when it gave him an exclusive right of wearing a particular sort of ribbon, the object which it then was considered as conferring on him was not an article of property, but a condition. By forbearing to subject you to certain disadvantages, to which its subject's an alien, the law confers on you the condition of a natural-born subject. By subjecting him to them, it imposes on him the condition of an alien, 
by conferring on you certain privileges or rights, which it denies to Roturier, the law confers on you the condition of a gentilhomme. By forbearing to confer on him those privileges, it imposes on him the condition of a Roturier. The rights out of which the two advantageous conditions he exemplified are both of them as it were composed have for their counterpart a sort of service of forbearance rendered as we have seen not by private individuals but by the law itself as to the duties which it creates in rendering you these services they are to be considered as duties imposed by the legislator on the ministers of justice it may be observed with regard to the greater part of the conditions here comprised under the general appellation of civil that the relations corresponding to those by which they are respectively constituted are not provided with appellatives. The relation which has a name is that which is borne by the party favoured to the party bound. That which is borne by the party bound to the party favoured has not any. This is a circumstance that may help to distinguish them from those conditions which we have termed domestic. In the domestic conditions, if on one side the party to whom the power is given is called a master, on the other side the party over whom the power is given, the party who is the object of that power, is termed a servant. In the civil conditions this is not the case. On the one side a man, in virtue of certain services of forbearance, which the rest of the community are bound to render him, is denominated a knight of such or such an order. But on the other side, these services do not bestow any particular denomination on the person for whom such services are due. Another man, in virtue of the legislator's rendering that sort of negative service which consists in the not prohibiting him from exercising a trade, invests him at his option with the condition of a trader. It accordingly denominates him a farmer, a baker, a weaver, and so on. But the ministers of the law do not, in virtue of their rendering this man this sort of negative service, acquire for themselves any particular name. Suppose even that the trade you have the right of exercising happens to be the object of a monopoly, and that the legislator, beside rendering you himself those services, which you derive from the permission he bestows on you, obliges other persons to render you those farther services which you received from their forbearing to follow the same trade, yet neither do they, in virtue of their being thus bound, require any particular name. After what has been said of the nature of the several sorts of civil conditions that have names, the offences to which they are exposed may, without much difficulty, be imagined. Taken by itself, every condition which is thus constituted by a permission granted to the possessor is, of course, of a beneficial nature. It is therefore exposed to all those offences to which the possession of a benefit is exposed. But either on account of a man's being obliged to persevere when once engaged in it, or on account of such other obligations as may stand annexed to the possession of it, or on account of the comparative degree of disrepute which may stand annexed to it by the moral sanction, it may, by accident, be a burthen, it is on this account liable to stand exposed to the offences to which, as hath been seen, everything that partakes of the nature of a burthen stands exposed. 
As to any offences which may concern the exercise of the functions belonging to it, if it happens to have any duties annexed to it, such as those, for instance, which are constituted by regulations touching the exercise of a trade, it will stand exposed to so many breaches of duty, and lastly, whatsoever are the functions belonging to it, it will stand exposed at any rate to disturbance. In the forming, however, of the catalogue of these offences, exactness is of less consequence, insomuch as an act, if it should happen not to be comprised in this catalogue, and yet is in any respect of a pernicious nature, will be sure to be found in some other division of the system of offences. If a baker sells bad bread for the price of good, it is a kind of fraud upon the buyer, and perhaps an injury of the simple corporal kind done to the health of an individual or a neighbourhood. If a clothier sells bad cloth for good at home, it is a fraud. If to foreigners abroad, it may, over and above the fraud put upon the foreign purchaser, have pernicious effects, perhaps, in the prosperity of the trade at home, and become thereby an offence against the national wealth. So again with regard to disturbance. If a man be disturbed in the exercise of his trade, the offence will probably be a wrongful interception of the profit he might be presumed to have been in the way to make by it, and were it even to appear in any case that a man exercised a trade, or what is less unlikely, a liberal profession, without having profit in his view, the offence will still be reducible to the head of simple injurious restrainment, or simple injurious compulsion. End of chapter 16